back in 2011 or 2012, the Harvard Business Review released an article saying that data scientist is going to be the sexiest job title <laughs> by the year 2018. And boy, were they right. I'm joined today by an expert in data science. She's had an impact on many different businesses and has a lot of insight to share. You don't need to know anything about data science to follow along, and I've added a few diagrams to the notes to make it even easier. Let's get into episode 13 of the Toronto Tech Podcast. Principal data scientist and jack of all trades, Sabina Stanescu. Yes, hello. Thanks for being here. No problem. You've got a ton of experience. You've worked on so many different projects that are interesting that I want to get into. Mm -hmm. But the first thing I have to ask you is, in your own words, what is data science? Data science is maybe a discipline, I would call it. Uh, I mean, it's the intersection of a variety of things like computer science, math and stats, um, business understanding, things like that. I actually had a very good description by someone about specialization versus generalization. And one of the interesting things is like you can think of someone being as a T-shape. So you're very yep. broad and then you have like a specific area of expertise that you're very deep into. Some people are pie shapes. So like the, the symbol of pie, you've got like maybe oh, yeah. two areas. Two big things. Two big things. And someone also came up with this uh, visualization of icicles on a roof. So okay. you're very <laughs> <laughs> you know a lot of areas. Yeah, you're very broad and you're also really deep in a lot of areas, so icicles. So I feel like I'm a little bit of an icicle, but I mean, maybe not a whole roof of icicles. <laughs> yeah, so I know I a lot of I different would... things. <laughs> I'm just laughing at the prospect of calling someone like an eavesdrop of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's a good way to think about it. It's like pretty wide and then you've got random icicles sort of hanging yeah. down. So it's a very broad field and also that's why titles are a little bit misleading because different people specialize in different things or are on different spectrums of this giant field. Mm -hmm. it, it's so wide that it's hard to describe as a single entity. Yeah, what, what are some of the fields that intersect at the where data science is? Uh, data engineering is part of data science, but it's also its own thing that intersects with uh, data science. Software engineering also is something that more and more today intersects with data science. Um, basically, any business unit that has something to do with putting things in production or running things in production... Uh, so IT well, ops, so DevOps. you guys are DevOps. Yeah. <laughs> so any kind of department that will touch some of that. Gotcha. Yeah. And th all the descriptions I've seen online doing research for mm -hmm. this are similarly vague and kind of hard to pin down. Yes. Yeah. So it sounds like this is really at the middle of not only all these different disciplines, but problems of the business. Yes. That otherwise don't fit into a shoebox. Exactly. It's more about being able to solve something rather than a specific way of solving something. So data science gives you tools, but it doesn't say you should be doing something this way. I mean, there are guidelines, but it doesn't mean you your business problem will fall into a specific category that you know exactly online. It's like, ah, oh, yes, this is how I do oh, this thing. It's one of these. <laughs> yeah, and then you go do it. It's not like right. that. Yeah. 
the types you deal with the types of problems that I guess like there's not really a roadmap for and you have to kind of figure it out yourself. Yeah, you have to figure out if data science is even applicable for the problem. Sometimes you look at the problem and you realize that, oh, I can come up with a few simple business rules that will help make this process better or will help this customer experience be better. And that that's fine. That works. You don't have to do machine learning to do it. And there are some cases where you're like, oh, I think we need to build something custom in data science, like with machine learning, to be able to solve this problem. And in some cases, you might say, oh, we're going to buy some software that's going to solve this right. problem. So uh-huh. you have to just scope it out and see whether or not it's a data science type of problem. And a lot of them are, and a lot of them are not. <laughs> Consistently vague. Yes. I'm gonna, I guess it, I, I will have some concrete examples, but mm-hmm. yeah, it is vague in that way. Um, I do want to get into many of the projects that you've done. I know you've worked a lot with machine learning, model generation. You've done some natural language processing. Yep. And yep. you've also done a lot of uh, projects that didn't require those big fancy tools. Yep, that's right. Uh, are there any... Give us a, an easy one to kind of like get us oriented in the world of data science. Yeah, so an easy one is to figure out, uh, very simple, any e-commerce website would have this problem. Uh, you have a bunch of potential uh, prospects or customers uh, that interact with your site, and you might want to give them a special offer. Uh, so you figure out, who should I target with my special offer um, so you don't you know, mass email everyone, but you're more targeted, you figure out, okay, based on this type of profile, you're more likely to interact with us or buy our product, so I'm going to be sending you an email. Mm -hmm. So that's a very typical marketing e-commerce application of data science where uh, you just target a specific uh, group of people with a specific offer, uh, so you're more um, personalized, you're more targeted. Uh, So that's an easy one to think about. And is that ultimately... Like, why wouldn't you want to send a promo to all of your customers? Uh, you might have them get tired of all your emails. <laughs> and they become okay. numb to all the emails that they get from you, for one. Uh, you might also want to have a very specific kind of offer that's more relevant to a particular customer. So maybe not everything is relevant to everyone. Uh, and if you have more relevant offers, they're more likely to interact with them. Right. I see. So it's, it's, you don't want to exhaust the customer. Exactly. So you target them more yeah. specifically. Yeah. So this is a very common application of something I've done a lot of in the past, mm-hmm. uh, working in marketing, for example. Yeah. And you're working today at a company called Altair, which we'll yeah. come back to. Mm-hmm. Um, you used to work here at Points. Yes. Um, but this was not your first job. Yes, that's correct. So I used to work at a company called Angos Software. That's where I started being a data scientist. Uh, where my journey began. That company actually got acquired by DataWatch, and then Altair acquired DataWatch. So oh. <laughs> it's almost Full like circle. I've, I've gone back to the same, but a different company. That'd be uh, cool if there were still some people that you worked with. Oh, there are. There, there are. are. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're kind of like reconnecting with people from, I don't know, many years ago. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. Cool. Well, what did you learn there that kind of made you into a data scientist? Well, So I started out with knowing stats uh, and R, which I learned in school. So that was was my foundation. And when I started uh, working at Angos, they're a software company, but software for data science. So then I got to see a a very wide breadth 
of different data science tools that were available. And I started to see how different customers were using different tools to solve different problems. And I started also working on those problems myself uh, for those customers, so consulting services. So that's how I got into data science. I just learned on the job and learned from people that were more um, experienced than I, and then I sort of started getting all of that experience myself. Gotcha. And it sounds like you weren't just a cog in some system. It was very project-oriented. You would tackle one little project for a client at a time. Yes. Yeah, that's it. So it was project-based. I also worked on the R&D side. So sometimes we'd get feedback from customers on, well, it would be really great to be able to do this kind of thing. We're like, okay, we can put that in the software, but we'll do it for you in the meantime as a project. But each project was standalone, like a consulting gig, essentially. Uh, and then I would work on it and deliver some results. And then I would get a different project, work on it, get some results. Nice, so, very project-oriented. Yeah. Which, honestly, I love that. Taking bite-sized pieces, working on them, finishing them, you know, mini celebration on a Friday. Yeah. And then moving on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that um, I like about different kinds of, like, bigger long-term projects is that you get to see it from its inception to its deployment, which I find really fun. Uh, deployment is one part that's missing out of these smaller projects because you rely on the client properly deploying what you did. Mm. Uh, right, it's not even up to you. Yeah, so there are pros and cons and how much fun you have on a particular project. But some projects are like, well, you know, it's fine to not worry about deployment. They can do whatever they want. So. <laughs> Let them deal with it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm yeah. working on a project right now where... Uh, a client is POCing different methods for their data, and um, I can't say too much about it, but what I can say is that I sort of uh, do one portion of the data prep work and the modeling, and I show them that, yes, this will work, and then they'll be like, okay, now we're going to take all of our data and scale that up and apply it everywhere, and they mm -hmm. do that. So it's really nice that you know I don't have to do all of that. So you almost build these proofs of concepts. Yeah, yeah, I and see. then the clients will apply them more broadly and more more of their data to it. Interesting. So it's almost like you're coming in as an expert data scientist and you're kind of yeah. showing them how to data science. <laughs> Basically, yeah, showing them how to data science. Yeah, <laughs> I, have, I have another project like this. Uh, this is with a startup as well. And they're like, we want to do real-time scoring. Uh, and uh, I'm advising them on how to do that. Cool. So cool. it's being an advisor and a consultant and an expert in the area. So that was your, that's how you got started, the humble beginnings Yeah. that were then acquired and then acquired. Um, but you came into points as a data scientist, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that's correct. Yeah, I was in the, I first worked in marketing. That's where I came up with that uh, um, example of targeting specific customers with specific offers. Points does that. They're very targeted with offers for. We are today. And yeah. I very much took it for granted that we've always done it that way. Yeah. So when I started there was a little bit of that, uh, but my job was to become more and more targeted for different customer offers, different segments of customers, profiling uh, different segments of customers and figuring out you know, how we should talk to them, what kind of offer they should get, things like that. So we went <laughs> So we went from having a little bit of targeting and analytics and a few basic reports to the reports points has today and all the models and all the data science work that's being done now and the different targeting uh, strategies. 
Yeah. Which there, there's a lot now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We started out with very little, uh, and it's the entire um, marketing has evolved a lot over the past wow. years that I was here. So when I think of data science, I think of someone doing a, a fulfilling a need of the business, yeah. not changing the business. But it sounds like that's what you've done in this case. Yeah. So sometimes when there is nothing being done or something very rudimentary being done in a particular area of the business, doing data science will change that aspect of the business considerably. So I can give you an example of a project I'm working on right now. Uh, this is uh, actually another NLP project. It's an internal project. So Altair has different software and there's help in that software. And uh, a we got a project to recommend other help pages based on the help page you're working on. So it's a recommender system, but it's based on natural language processing. So the project I'm on right now, we've actually finished our user testing and got really good feedback uh, on the recommended links we're generating for the help menu. Oh, interesting. Um, so the documentation uh, aspect of the software has gone from people just writing content to now we want to add smarts to that documentation and make it better. Um, so you're actually starting to change because we're trying to integrate into their build process right now for the software. So it's actually going to change that part of the business. Oh, so this wasn't something that they do on the initial. This is every time they're going to publish a new version with new documentation, you're going to run whatever system you've created to link all these things together. Exactly, exactly. So they're the technical writers are going to continue writing technical documents as always, but they're going to make changes and they're going to add new features or new pages. So every time they publish, we also want to publish with them a list of recommended links to read. Yeah. That's really cool. You're, you're changing the way businesses work. Yeah. I, ideally, if you're doing something with impact, it will change how the business works. Right. And it's, it's good that you brought up this word because everything that I have seen online as to what is data science revolves around this centerpiece that is solving problems and having an impact. Yes, that's correct. I have this really nice visual that I can't show obviously in a po <laughs> podcast, but there are different uh, quadrants of work. So if you're doing the, the same old thing, um, maybe it's reporting, you're having a little bit of impact, but not a lot. If you're doing innovative things and they affect the business, that's what, what's really going to be impactful for the business. If you're doing something in what we call the ivory tower, so you're just doing data science work because there's a cool new model out there that you want to try, which is fine, but if it doesn't connect to anything that your business does or there's no way for you to have it affect the, the final business outcome, then it doesn't have any impact. Right. So you're kind of just doing it for fun, but nothing else. Right. That's just research at that point. Which yes, exactly. It's valuable in and of itself, but mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily change a business. Exactly. Yeah. So it doesn't have any impact, but it changes you as a person and your knowledge, right. which is Hopefully. fine. <laughs> but yeah, from an impact uh, point of view, it doesn't have much. Mm -hmm. Is there a lot of that ivory tower stuff happening where you know you see talks and presentations and people are kind of like, doing interesting work, but then not tying it back to real problems? I haven't seen much of that. One or two talks at conferences tend to be like that, but the rest of the talks are linked to some sort of impact 
for the business, at least the most recent conferences I've gone to. So by and large, practical. Yes, yeah. But often the talks focus on the algorithms themselves and how they're able to get them to work for their particular problem, but they're not a lot of details on how they actually ended up deploying it or using it. It's linked, but it's often not talked about. Right, and I found that too when when I was doing research. So, um, by the way, your quadrant photo, we'll put that in the episode notes so people can find it, and then you can talk about it. Sure. Um, That pyramid that I found and showed to you Mm -hmm. where there's different requirements to do data science, and before, at the very top is like ML generation, machine learning, Mm -hmm. AI. Yeah. To do that stuff, you need so many prerequisites below that. Yes. Um, And even that, which I thought was a very good representation of the different levels of data science did not talk at all about how you do deployment, how you do monitoring, how you make changes and tweaks, because you're not going to nail it the first time. Exactly. But this is something that you talk about really often. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I actually like to talk about this at conferences. It's one of my favorite talks that I actually give. Uh, And yeah, there's often very little talked about in terms of how you actually go the next step from a machine learning model. Um, So a lot of that has to do with infrastructure and building the right kind of infrastructure. So how do you serve the model? How do you update the model? Who's involved in that? How do you maintain the data pipeline that gets fed into the model? Who's in charge of maintaining the pipeline? How do you build reporting off of what your model generates? Uh, And that often involves getting data feedback from whatever system you deployed it into to wherever you store your data. Um, and then having ways to have multiple models in production to test them against each other. Right, so you can A, B, test, and see, yes, my new version really is better. Yeah. Or no, it's, it's not working as well yeah. as we thought. Exactly. You want to know if a model exploded in production uh, before it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> so And monitoring, as you're saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you want to have as close as you can, if you have a real-time scoring model, you want to monitor it in real time to see how it's performing. So there's a, a huge cost to actually have these models in production. And when I was at points, this is exactly what we built for the points travel product. Um, so that was really great. It took us a while, but it paid off in the end. Yeah. Take us through that project, because I think there's some interesting learnings there. So I'll, I'll go back to the very beginning. Uh, so points travel, as you know, offers hotels. So you want to have the best hotels for the customers show up at the top of the search so they don't have to scroll down and try to find what, you know, what's the most valuable hotel in terms of the points that I can earn or right. the best value that I can get for each hotel. So at the very beginning, we were getting hotel popularity from Expedia, which I think we got not on a very often basis and it it wasn't that great. And CTO of points, Owen said, I don't like this, hmm. Let, we can do much better. Uh, so that's where the project started. Um, so the first things first, as I mentioned, there's a lot of infrastructure to build and sometimes simple business rules might be enough. So our first step was to evaluate, okay, what makes a hotel something that someone wants to book? You know, is it right. that they get a lot of points from it? Is it a lot of stars? Like, is it four to five star hotels? Is it value? So like the cost per star, things like that. So a subject matter expert basically came up with, here are what I think are 
going to be the best hotels that are people are going to be interested in booking. And then we set that up and we uh, set up this A-B testing infrastructure to try the Expedia hotel popularity score versus a subject matter expert score. So this was manual ranking versus some other uh, information provider. It wasn't quite manual. There are a bunch of different uh, business, we'll call them business rules. Uh, that just rated hotels based on some sort of value that they would be providing a user. Gotcha. So we tested that, and it turned out that our business rules were much better than the popularity score. So we're like, right away you have a win, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you don't need any fancy machine learning to do that. And the reason it was easy to win at that is because there are very few features that were available on the hotels. So as humans, it's easy for us to come up with some simple heuristics to say, okay, well, hotels are four stars and I get a lot of points per dollar spent uh, and the dollar value per star is really good. Well, that's a good hotel. Yeah. Pretty simple. So there was only like three dimensions to that problem which it sounds like you didn't even need any of that machine learning AI stuff to figure it out. Yeah, so that's what I mean when you get started on a you have a business problem, and sometimes the easiest way to solve that business problem is to figure out, you know, what are some simple rules that I can put in place to make the experience right. better. And just solve it directly. Yeah, just solve it directly. When it gets more complicated is when you start to add more features to the problems or more dimensions to the problems, and then humans are not able to parse all of that information and try to make sense of it. And that's when you start to look at the actual data that the system generates to see what is the actual behavior which hotels are getting booked, you know, what, how can I predict which hotels are going to be booked? So the second phase of that project was exactly that. So we had the infrastructure to be able to serve up different models. We started getting all of the historical data on which hotels got booked. We uh, did some feature engineering. So what I mean by that is based on the data that we got, what kind of interesting features could we calculate um, mm. So, so not just the three you've mentioned, but w- if it had more windows or something like that. Yeah, we didn't get quite that deep into okay. it, but <laughs> things like a, a normalized cost or a no- normalized uh, cost per star. Um, so there are different measures that we calculated that were uh, normalized based on that entire search. So it's a little bit harder to do that for a person, you know, how to assess all of those individual features. Um, So then I started building models uh, to try to predict which hotel was most likely to be booked. And once I had that model, we would use the score that the model generated to sort hotels. So the higher the score a hotel had, the higher on the list on the search. So what was on the first page was your original filtering of business rules. And then the model would sort them on the page? No, actually, so we A-B tested it. So randomly, we showed some users the old business rules to sort the hotels. Uh, Let's say that 50% of the users Mm -hmm. saw the the business rule ordering, and then 50% of the other users would see uh, hotels ordered by uh, my model, which was the probability of that hotel to be booked. Right. So we thought there's something inherent about specific hotel features that would make them likely to be booked. And the business rule showed us that, indeed, there are some combinations of these features that will make a hotel more attractive to a customer. And your model ended up being 
significantly better than yes. the old one? Yes, yeah. So it took quite a few months and quite a few iterations uh, to improve the models, but not only just improve the models, get more data and history of like what actually was a good hotel until my model actually won against the business rules. Oh, wow. So even though it, it still took a long time. It still took a long time, yeah. Because hmm. there there's actually, although there are a lot of rows of data, and what I mean by rows of data, there are a lot of hotels um, that were searched, and some of them were booked, and some of them were not booked. We still didn't have a lot of features, because most users were not logged in. We didn't know who they were, so if they had any, any kind mm. of preference... All we knew is their search terms and the hotel inventory. So we could extract some things from the um, the features of the hotel and the features of the search itself. Right, like if they had said downtown in the query. Yeah, we didn't use that one, but if it, for example, <laughs> how many nights, how many adults, you know, and then the hotel features like stars and price and things like that and all our calculated features out of that. So we had that... Um, but it's from a for a machine learning problem. It's actually not a lot of features. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to say, in part of this A/B testing, we also uh, implemented something called uh, multi-arm bandit. Right. I've heard that term, and I, but I have no idea what it means. So multi-arm bandit. There are different algorithms, but uh, we implemented a really simple one where the best model in that second is evaluated. So let's say model A. Uh, uh. based on a KPI we set, let's say, conversion, Model A has the best conversion right now. So we're going to show Model A ranking to um, most of our traffic. Let's say 90% of our traffic is going to see Model A, and then 10% is going to be split between A and B. So it's just the, we call it a greedy epsilon. So we're very greedy about, okay, whatever is best in this moment, most people are going to see that. Uh, and that way... Um, multi-arm bandits allowed for exploitation and exploration at the same time. So A-B testing, if there's exploration, say, is A better or is B better? And once you spend quite a lot of time thinking about that uh, and gathering data, you say, okay, A is better, and then 100% of the traffic goes to A. Whereas with multi-arm bandit is what's good right now, mm -hmm. send all of your, or not all of your traffic, most, most of your traffic to what's good right now, uh, and then you still learn, you have some learning traffic, so you... Uh, earn while, while you learn. Yeah. So it's kind of like leaving space for you to always be experimenting a little bit. Exactly. Always be experimenting, but also take advantage of in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Book those hotels. <laughs> One thing that I've heard hinted, but not really confirmed anywhere, is that data science can look very different, whether you're at a small company, a medium company, and a big company. Have you found that to be true? Or what's your kind of feeling of that? the the size will will make a difference. So a startup might have maybe one data science person and this person is actually doing uh, data engineering and data science and maybe they're doing all the reporting. Because right, they have as to well. be. Because they have to be. So mm -hmm. it will look very different. But different departments, depending on their business problems, will have a different outlook of what data science looks like. Uh, so let's say a company might have um, a department for uh, R&D, and you have data scientists working in R&D and trying to figure new things out, but you might also have more uh, operational departments like marketing or credit or risk 
where you're just trying to manage like the day-to-day aspects through data science. So uh, let's say if you're a car company, uh, you might have some R&D in trying to like, maybe you're trying to improve your design of the cars you're manufacturing and trying to see which designs are more likely to result in a safer car, things like that. But you might also have a department that does uh, credit. So if someone wants to buy cars, you give them credit. Mm. So you're trying to figure out who should you give a loan to. You might also have a collections department. So <laughs> figuring right. Who's out... Who's likely like, to default this month? <laughs> exactly. So you might have different types of data science based on the department that you're working in. And of course, size has an impact on that because the bigger the company, you might have the resources to have data science in these different departments. Right. A bigger company can afford to be more specific. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. It's interesting that you brought up that it's it can be so different as it's applied across different uh, yes. departments because I, I hadn't thought of that. So that matters far more than the size of a company. Yes. I, I, they do go hand in hand, but one affects the other in a, in a sense. So let's talk about a project that you worked on here at Points when you were here. Okay. Um, where... As I understand it, you were trying to extract destination information from messages that... Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so when uh, loyalty program members either transfer points to each other or gift points, there's an option to leave a message. And that message, it might actually have some hints about where they're thinking about traveling. As a user, you probably want to transfer your points to someone else so that they can uh, collect everything and book some flights, let's say. That's right. So when we started looking into the messages, we indeed found destinations such as can't wait for a trip to Chicago, as an example. And we thought this is a great opportunity. Um, The data science is also great for this, not just solving a business problem, but also identifying potential Mm -hmm. opportunities. If it's even even something you can chase. Yeah. Yeah. So we looked at, uh, we saw somewhere around 11% of our messages that members sent to each other actually contained a destination. And we thought, what a great cross-sell opportunity that would be from gifting and transferring to actually booking a hotel. (laughs) So actually, we go back to the hotels again, but... um, Well, we thought, okay, if we can extract the fact that someone is about to travel to a particular destination and they're building up their points balance, we should offer them a hotel in that destination. So we should be targeted and specific. So if you want to travel to to Chicago, for example, we should say, hey, do you want to book a hotel in Chicago? Here's a great hotel right near the airport in Chicago. Yeah. And you can also earn more points by booking it. Ah, there's the (laughs) tie-in. Yes, exactly. So uh, we worked together, Maliha and I worked on it to figure out, can we come up with uh, a model to detect entities? Uh, So entities in uh, natural language processing refer to any kind of proper nouns. So people's names, place names, even dates or addresses, but specifically to detect location type entities. Right. So someone could have typed an actual city name. They could have typed a country name. They could have misspelled it. They could have had uh, a short form of it. Yep. Uh, for example, if someone might type San Francisco, someone might also type San Fran. So we needed to fig- have a model that figured out that those are exactly the same thing and not different destinations. So we couldn't just use a dictionary of city names that right. wouldn't have worked. And yeah, there was way too much. And then you'd have to maintain that. And Exactly. 
So we trained a natural language processing model to identify these particular entities, the location type entities, and Maliha actually built a microservice that would take in any kind of text, uh, such as a message that a member typed out, figure out if there is a destination, and then talk to another API to pull up a hotel in that destination oh, wow. that we could then show in a receipt email. So it's like, oh, you just received 10,000 points from your spouse. Uh, and hey, do you also want to book a hotel in Chicago, for example? Wow, amazing. Yeah. So in, in the span of a couple of weeks, I think you guys were a month. We're about a month, yeah. Yeah, which is incredible to me that I can have that kind of insight in a month. And even spell-checked if I spell San Francisco wrong, which is often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Did, did this actually get deployed and get put into use? So I'm actually not sure because that was my last month at points. Yeah, I'm actually not sure either. Okay. I had no visibility into that project yep. other than, yeah. holy shit, look over there. That's really cool. Yep, yeah. So I hope it will get deployed. Uh, I've handed it off to someone else that cares about it. So Very cool. Yep. I guess I'll I guess I'll follow up on that. I want yeah. I want to know if that went out. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Does that does that happen sometimes where a company sort of invests a lot of time and energy and then ends up deciding they don't want to use what you built? Um, it more often happens when the client doesn't have a clear understanding of what they want to do with a particular model or project. They're doing it because, hey, that's kind of cool. We should also do that. More of a jumping mm. on a bandwagon. And then it doesn't really get used for anything. It's rare. At least it hasn't happened to me very often. But it can happen for sure. Okay, that's good. Maybe maybe you've got a certain standard of quality that makes businesses take it very seriously. I think one of the things, and it's from the image you shared with me, that the building blocks to actually get to data science require a lot of investment. And um, usually companies are pretty serious if they've gotten so far that they're at the machine learning step. They've invested so much that they want to see results from right. it. Yeah. And if listeners, if you go to our episode notes, you can find the diagram. But if you're just listening, it's a pyramid. And I think there's, there's six levels in this pyramid. So the bottom one in the first place is to have data. So you can't do anything if you don't have data. The next one is the infrastructure to um, extract and translate that data into something useful. And that infrastructure has to be reliable. The next one is cleaning, so to make sure there's no junk data in there. And that's when you're actually running analytics, running metrics. Those are the sort of the bottom or the core stuff. Like yeah. you've no hope of moving on if you don't have that in exactly. place. Exactly. Yeah. And then the next ones are actually having an impact. So doing A B testing, doing experimentation. And the top layer is doing AI and doing machine learning things. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if you've invested everything below machine learning, of course you're gonna spend the money for an employee or two or a team. To tackle it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, usually a lot of the data, the data storage and the data cleaning itself, a lot of companies do uh, just for more operational reasons like uh, bookkeeping and reporting. So they weren't initially built with data science or machine learning in mind, especially for uh, maybe older companies, but they realize they have that infrastructure and then they can sort of go to the next step and start thinking about machine learning. But a lot of companies do reporting. It's very uh, integral right. to operations day to day, for example. Right. You know, if you, you can't run a business without having analytics and reporting to yes. tell you if you're on the right track. Exactly. Yeah. I, I feel like 
the direction we should be going in uh, is uh, you can't run certain types of businesses without having machine learning on top of that. Interesting. What are, do you have any examples? Working at Altair, we have a lot of engineering clients and they're starting to think about machine learning uh, in trying to f- predict certain things. And it turns out that they have a lot of data available and the adoption is slower than perhaps other industries, but they're realizing now the benefits. So I think more and more companies or industries are going to realize that the way that they're going to be competitive is to actually have machine learning embedded in their process and embedded Mm. in what they create. So I take it these are big, well-established companies that you're talking about. Yes, that's right. right. They're very big companies and they're trying to find areas where they can also apply machine learning and get a benefit. Okay. Some of the marketing material I've seen from Altair shows things like, I believe it was BMW they were working with to make a better crankshaft Mm -hmm. that was not going to break and that was going to stand up to more forces. There were some demonstrations of stress testing airplane wings and big like buildings, like big metal pieces for Mm -hmm. buildings. So there's a lot of interesting things that Altair is working on. Yeah. And there's a lot of data. Um, A lot of simulations generate data. And then you can figure out, well, if, if you simulate a crash, a car crash, this behaves a lot better than this other type of structure. Mm. So you can try to predict, you know, how should you design your car based on what that, what that simulation data is telling you. So you, you can, there's a lot of data, uh, so you can start using it too. Uh, for example, rather than designing all the possible configurations of a car and simulating them, you might be able to use a model to tell you this is like the optimal configuration. You should try to design it this way, for example. Hmm. And are you saying there's machine learning that then tries to design these pieces? Or is it just about simulating and spitting out results? I, I think that's a little bit far off. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> not that machine learning will design things for you, but if you give it a labeled data set, so uh, you have you know these parts, let's say if you're designing a part, these parts tended to crack in this design and these parts oh, gotcha. didn't crack in this design. So you can use that information to create a model to identify, you know, is this part likely to crack or not? So a simple classification model, just the data is different. It's actually gotcha. data from a model. And I guess once you have that kind of data, you can get some quick answers much faster than by running a full simulation, you know, in a couple of hours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Um, the company they're working for now, Altair, which... Still, every time I think about the company, it reminds me of the Altair 8800. Okay. Like that big old computer that started everything. Oh, I see. <laughs> yes, I've heard that one before. So I wonder if that's got an interesting time, but obviously you guys are doing nothing related to that. No, no. It's uh, a lot of engineering software, uh, data science software, high-performance computing. Um, so there, there's a wide swath of things that Altair does. Do you guys have supercomputers like sitting in the basement ready to run all your ML? I actually don't know that much about that branch. So I, can't, <laughs> I, I don't have much to say so about it. Sounding a little ivory tower over here. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm part of um, the services group for data science. So services means we actually uh, work with clients like engineering clients or banks or marketing companies 
to deliver actual projects. So, you know, getting the data, understanding the data, creating models, giving them either models or reports or whatever it is that they want. Right. Now, as a principal data scientist at Altair, what does that mean for a layman like me? So I, I chose the title myself. <laughs> Used a lot less silly words than I would have if I chose my own title. <laughs> so I chose that title myself. Um, I think it just means that I have a lot of experience. Okay. Thus principal. And I am a data scientist. Okay. Clear cut. So I, I, that's the reason I, I chose that particular title just to... How did you get to make up your own title? Was it, did they tell you in the job interview, like, by the way, you got it. Now you get to make up a title. <laughs> no, no. I, I just asked if I can have that title. Oh, and they were, they yes. were all for it. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it doesn't hurt to ask. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, listeners. Take, take, you know, ask for what you want. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't think I could have had a silly sounding title, but, you know, something within reason. <laughs> there was um, two companies ago we got this like social media internal collaboration tool and we were all told to fill out our profiles mm -hmm. and there was a free form text box where uh, job title was or job description. Yeah. And I think I put as many words as I can possibly put. It was like regional chief deputy senior executive <laughs> developer. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, maybe I should come up with an alter title <laughs> like that. Like, and put it on LinkedIn. Watch it wrap three times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds great. That's a good idea. So when you were describing your role, though, you said you work with clients to make sure projects get done, deliver to them what they need. Yeah. It sounds like there's almost a, a big project management role in there. Yeah, there's definitely project management uh, involved. I'm working on a project right now where there are two other data scientists working on it uh, with me. And as well, there's a manager from the country that the client is in and there's a lot of different moving parts and I've actually done some of the work and then now some of actually three other data scientists are working on the rest of the work so just coordinating making sure that um, transitions are smooth so from my part of the work transitioning to another data scientist working on it so there is definitely project management involved in that and there are going to be other client projects coming up that are going to be like that. Hmm. So how much of your role, is it still primarily data science, like on the ground actually doing the work? Some of it is, uh, and some of it is like the, um, the NLP project that I'm working on. Natural with the, language processing? Yeah, the mm -hmm. document recommendation project. I'm more of just an advisor, a technical okay. advisor. Like, <laughs> I just say that this this is how we should approach this problem. This is how we can solve it. Here are some tools that I think we can use. It's like, now go do it. <laughs> right. So it's almost like uh, guiding or mentoring at that point. Yes, yeah. So a lot of it is mentoring other more junior data scientists. Uh, part of it is just helping project manage and making sure things go smoothly and that different people work together. Um, I actually... I'm also developing a new training course right now for some of our software. Internally or Internally. for our clients? Okay. Uh, for, well, it's going to be a course that's offered to clients. Offered to clients so they can learn? Uh, software. The software that you guys have. Exactly. Oh, exactly. I got it. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of different things that I'm doing. Um, 
part of it right now. We're also developing new software, so I'm contributing to that uh, as well. So a little bit of product management help there. <laughs> so uh, truly interdisciplinary. Yes. Like yeah. not only are you mentoring and coaching, you're choosing or helping choose algorithms, you're doing the work on the ground, providing guidance, yeah. and hopefully no Gantt charts, but no. <laughs> project management. No, no. And the, the other thing I'm working on is for the, there's two different data science teams, one located in Toronto that does, we call it the business data science. So more banking clients, uh, marketing clients. So things related to more business applications. And then there's a engineering data science team that um, resides in uh, Troy, Michigan, where the yep. headquarters is. Well, one of the things I, I want to do is provide us with a standardized environment to do data science in. So providing all of the tools and computing power and things like that. So just trying to unify hmm. into one environment. Oh, I see. So setting up standard tools and standard yeah. platforms. Yeah. So trying to get all the teams aligned on what is the standard process tools and policies. Uh, this is perfect segue because I want to get into some of the tools that you use. Sure. Yeah. Um, one of them, can you tell us what is a Jupyter Notebook? A Jupyter Notebook, that's a great uh, question. So I would call it maybe an advanced IDE. So it's, um, it's an interface that can work for a variety of code. So um, you can choose what we call a kernel. So a kernel could be hmm. a Python kernel, it could be an R kernel, Scala, Julia, etc. And you can use, let's say you've chosen a Python kernel, you have these cells where you can type in Python code and you run that cell and you get an output. So the reason we like to use Jupyter Notebooks in data science is because, uh, let's say the first thing I wanna do is import some data. I'm going to write a statement to read the CSV file, suppose, and I do like a basically header so I can see the first five rows of my data. So there's like a, Write some code, get an output. Write some code, get an output. Gotcha. So you're checking each step of the way. It's for exploratory reasons and prototyping. Okay, so this is not for what you're going to deploy to production. This is for you kind of like figuring out what's going on, get you, getting your head around the problem. Yeah, so often you don't know what the data looks like. You don't know what you're going to find. You need to do some exploratory work, some visualization uh, you're going to try this model or that model or this way to clean the data, but you don't know exactly what you're going to pick. Yeah. Okay. So does Jupyter let you sort of, with each cell, save that result and so you don't have to keep running it? So um, there are different ways to save results. So you can, the notebook itself will actually keep the printed output. The other thing is you can save outputs like graphs. You can save them as PNGs. Hmm. Uh, for ex uh, for example, um, you can save out data in any format that you want. You can also save models. Uh, so if you're working with Scikit-Learn in Python, you can pickle your models and save them that way. Uh, so uh, the other great thing about Jupyter Notebooks is if you're working with GitLab or GitHub, you can actually keep the rendered output of that notebook in your repository. So if you actually send the link to someone, to your repo, they can see all of the outputs in your notebook. Oh, that's convenient, because then as soon as you figure something out, you can sync with the team and be like, hey, 
this isn't what I expected. What do we do? Exactly. Exactly. So everyone can see the output without running your notebook. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Okay. So that's one of my favorite things about using a Jupyter notebook. Yeah. I know it's a tool that you've, that you've used a lot. So. Yeah. But like you said, it's not something you deploy in production. So the project, the NLP document project, document recommendation project I'm working on right now, uh, the two people on the team that were doing the technical work, um, they did everything in Jupyter Notebooks. And now that we're at the deployment phase, uh, they've written everything into uh, Python, just .py files, essentially, mm -hmm. that are going to be run um, with a build. Right. That's that's something that can actually be deployed. Exactly. Exactly. So that's done separately and as a separate step of this process. Is there any connection between that .py and your Jupyter Notebooks? There is no actual connection aside from, you know, you cherry pick the code from your notebook that you know works and this is the model you're going to go with and that's what you put in okay. the Python file. Okay, so it's, it really is completely separate from prod. Exactly. Okay. It is very separate. Cool. Take us all the way back to the very beginning of how did you get started in technology or computers, as it might have been called? Okay, sure. So I did my master's degree at the University of Guelph in ecology. So I studied plants and fungi. Huh. So it's completely not related to technology. But my link there was that I generated data from my thesis work. So I weighed plants and I visualized their root systems and measured uh, nutrients in the plants, etc. So when you have data, you can do something with that data. So I took a course called Graduate Statistics with R, where I learned uh, statistics as well as how to implement those stats in R, and I used it on my own data. The, that course actually, the final project was submit a chapter of your thesis with statistical analysis. Okay. So I learned R, which was the sort of data science open source tool at the time. And I also heard about something called data science while I was doing my master's degree. Uh, back in 2011 or 2012, the Harvard Business Review released an article saying that data scientist is going to be the sexiest job title <laughs> by the year 2018. And boy, were they right. Yeah, it's one of the hottest jobs now. And yes, yeah, even I, I don't really know exactly what it is, but data science is like, oh, shit, data science. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so my stats professor showed us that article saying, hey, you know, you're learning stats for your master's, but stats can be very useful for many other jobs and you know, I think this industry is going to be, or this job is going to be booming, or they think at least it's going to be booming. So I was like, hmm, that's interesting data science. Hadn't heard of it, but sounds pretty cool. And I loved R and I love stats. So mm. I was like, this might be the right path for me. And I didn't want to continue into research. Uh, so what I did then is I started job hunting and I would apply to anything that had some sort of analytics or stats in the job description. And the other thing that I did is I also applied to companies that did data science, but maybe the role itself wasn't in data science. So that's mm. actually what happened when I applied to work at Angos. They were hiring a customer tech support person. <laughs> so I applied for that job. 
Whoa, not at all related to anything you were after or had worked on. Exactly. So I applied for that job, and I, this is at the time I was actually writing my master's thesis. So I wasn't quite done school yet, but I started job hunting early. And they called me in for an interview. I went there. I got interviewed by, at the time, was the um, VP of R&D as well as the uh, director of data science. And I don't know why they interviewed me, but maybe because of my background, they also called in the director for data science. And they asked me a lot of questions, and I answered to the best of my ability, as one does at an interview. And <laughs> um, I didn't know a lot of business applications, uh, or I could say I didn't know any business application of stats or data science, and I didn't really know data science aside from some of the methods I used in my mm. own thesis work. And then they called me back. They said, we want to give you a job, but you're still in school, so you can't be our tech support because we need someone full time. Do you want to just come in and do stuff? I'm like, okay. Huh. So they gave you, even then you were making up your job title. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> what, what's my job title? They're like, I don't know, uh, business analyst. I was like, okay, whatever. Okay. So you came out as an air quotes business analyst. Yeah. And then I was comparing because Angos at the time and Altair now has that software, uh, their own proprietary data science software. So I was looking into different algorithms, comparing algorithms with R, writing white papers, um, ramping up some of their training materials, and just, you know, jack of all trades, helping with QA. Uh, I got into NLP because I QA'd uh, when they uh, integrated um, text engine into their software. So I spent a lot of time learning NLP to try to be able to QA it in the software. <laughs> um, I developed a course for that software. Um, so eventually I went from business analyst and I moved to the actual data science team. And that's when I got the actual data science job title, my first data wow. scientist job title. Once you finally graduated and started working... At more heavily there. Yes, yeah. exactly. I think a, a year after graduation, while I was working there, I changed over to the data science team and the data scientist job title. Wow. And that really, that really shows me that it's never too late to totally pivot and do something completely unrelated to what you've learned. Exactly, exactly. I don't do anything that I learned except problem solve. <laughs> Nothing to do with plant roots anymore. No, no plant roots, <laughs> no fungi. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. For some reason, I thought you had a background in like computers and statistics from like high school or younger. Oh, no, not at all. It's actually, uh, this is a advice I, I give to people that are looking into going into data science. And I do say that moving in laterally is probably good, especially you have other skills and other knowledge that maybe other types of data scientists don't have. So let's say you're a software developer. Data scientists generally are not software developers. They're data scientists. So if you're able to acquire a data science skill set and also have a software development uh, skill set, then you're actually like in a really great position in that field. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to go through the data science. I mean, at the time when I was in school, there was no data science. Route. Right. didn't exist. It didn't exist. Now it does, but you don't need to go that way to get into data science. Right. You can come in from statistics. You can come in from economics. You can come in from software, like you're saying, yeah. and probably a host of others. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's actually another one of my coworkers is also a biologist like myself. Like <laughs> I know several, actually, I know several biologists, data scientists because... Oh, interesting. Uh, 
ecology as a branch of uh, biology is very stats heavy. So we come equipped with the stats <laughs> knowledge and usually are. Uh, it's funny because I would never have thought to tie those two together. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, it doesn't matter what your background is. As long as you can problem solve, know a little bit of programming, maybe know a little bit of stats, you can get started. And if you know software development, that helps the kind mm -hmm. of mindset required for data science. So you came in knowing R, um, but you had not done Python before you started this job. Uh, correct. So I knew just R, and on the job, I learned SQL. I also learned Python, uh, SAS. I've been working on PySpark. Uh, so there's always something new, so, and it's impossible to know everything. Uh, but of often you learn on the job the things that are required for your job. Right. I want to get into just briefly what are some of these things. So I know R is a programming language specifically for what? Uh, it's a very, um, it's very often used in stats, um, especially for research. So R packages are often developed in universities to solve very specific kind of problems. It's a programming language. It's an object-oriented programming language, very similar to Python. Um, it's actually got a lot more stats-related packages than Python, uh, and it's a little bit more bleeding edge in hmm. that case. But it's very for very niche applications like that are very relevant to researchers. Whereas Python is a little bit more broad. It's not just limited to being used for stats. Right. It's used for a lot of different uh, applications, as right. you know. Uh, Python is a general-purpose programming language. Exactly. And it really is applied everywhere. Exactly. But it does have machine learning and stats-based packages, which are pretty yeah. good as well. Uh, and they're getting better. Uh, so... What is going on out there today? <laughs> Nothing but ambulances. Oh, man. Uh, so sorry, we were talking about Python, we were talking yeah. about R. Um, and SQL, structured query language, yes. is just for databases, searching databases. Yeah, it's not just searching databases, but you can write very complex queries to munge data together. So you join a variety of tables in different ways. You aggregate data. Um, often... You don't just use SQL or just Python. Uh, in most of my projects, I'll have um, SQL code for getting data from a database uh, embedded into my Python code. So SQL is really good at querying databases, and Python is really good at doing other things. So it's often like a, a patchwork of different types of code to actually get right. a project off the ground. Right, and that's why you either have to know or will learn all of these different tools. Exactly, yeah. So I would say, in a way, um, R and Python are a little bit more interchangeable, whereas um, SQL is more specific for working with databases. Right. Now, what is SAS? Because I've never heard of that. SAS is just another proprietary software um, that is can be code-based, so this called SAS. Uh, it's very often used in banks. Uh, it's very old, like from the, <laughs> I think from the I 80s. Inferred I inferred that from when you said banks. Yeah, so it's very embedded in banks. But uh, from my experience, banks are now trying to move to more open source, uh, like hmm. Python. So moving their SaaS models to Python models. Um, and also SaaS is very expensive software. Yeah. Okay, is, is SaaS also specific for doing analytics? and? Yes, but it's not really... It, it's code, but it's not really considered a programming language. Hmm. Okay. 
Yeah. It's an uh, odd one. Yeah. We will, I will have to do some research yeah. and link in the notes about that. Yep. So as I understand it, coming back into today, yeah. Altair, the kinds of problems that it gets thrown at are, it tackles very big problems or very complex problems. Has that been your experience so far? So I've only been at Altair for a couple months now, several months. Okay, so it's still, you're still kind of getting a feel of it. I'm still getting a feel, but there, again, it just really depends on who the clients are in terms of the, the problems that we're trying to solve. So they might be a large manufacturing client uh, with very big problems to solve or big areas of opportunity, or they might be a small startup that's trying to just like do one thing right but yeah, there's a wide breadth of different clients and different use cases and business issues that they have. Part of it is getting them software to do things, training them on software, but also mentoring them as well as just actually building models for them. So there's a, there's a range of things that can right. be done to solve so you, a problem. So Altair is not only a service provider, but it has products like here's software that will solve your thing. Exactly. Gotcha. Tell me about your involvement with AI Geek. Uh, so AI Geeks is a meetup. The founder of AI Geeks is looking for, you know, AI for good and trying to get people, uh, build up a community around that. And um, I've interacted with them and I've also just spoken at, at the meetup. AI for good as opposed to all the other AIs that are <laughs> just for world destruction? Yes, as opposed to the evil AIs. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I do speak at meetups and conferences, um, sometimes just like only once. Sometimes I keep in touch with them for like further further talks. And I think I will be talking with them at another time, but I haven't set that up yet. Not yet. Okay. Yep. Can you tell us about some of the conferences you have spoken about and what have the topics been? Yeah, so I've spoken at the first conference this year. I went to Women in Data Science conference. So that was great to see a lot of women data scientists or aspiring women data scientists. And I actually spoke about the deployment of machine learning, so deploying projects with impact. And actually, I spoke about the same thing with AI Geeks. And I've been to um, another meetup called Women in AI. And there I spoke about optimization. So this topic was more related to using multi-arm bandit to uh, go beyond A-B testing. So hmm. similar thing that we've talked about today. Uh, I've been to a women in big data meetup. And this was more... It sounds like there's a lot of subcultures here in data yes, science. Yes, there are. The Women in Big Data meetup was more, it was a career panel. So just talking about our careers, how we got into data or data science, and any advice that we could give to people trying to get into the job uh, title of data scientist or data engineer or just working with data in general. Uh, so there's a, a great panel of women with a variety of experience talking about that. Uh, and then the last conference I went to just this past weekend was in Dallas at the at the International Technology Conference hosted by the Asian American Engineering Chapter in Dallas. So Whoa, that's a mouthful. <laughs> yes, it it was a conference specifically geared towards engineers. So Altair has a lot of software for 
engineering companies to solve a variety of engineering problems. So they asked me to go speak at uh, a conference that they were interested in, which is this engineering conference in Dallas. And I spoke in the AI slash ML track for that mm. conference. The artificial intelligence and machine learning track. Yes. So there I actually focused on deployment again. The other speakers were more from um, a perspective of R&D. They were actually working with, some of them were working with universities. So having uh, ML labs set up at their universities and researching new, brand new cutting edge, bleeding edge stuff. I was more on the practical side of things, which is sort of my favorite topic. And there are some people that had a huge number of years of experience in data and computers and talked more about, you know, trends and how do we get from, you know, having very simple computers to the machine learning algorithms and chips that, you know, and the infrastructure that we have today that allows us to process such huge amounts of data with such complex, you know, deep neural networks. Right, right. As I understand, the, a lot of those deep neural networks require so much computing power today. Yes. And we're not really at a point yet where the hardware is very optimized for those kinds of workloads. Yeah, and also you need a lot of data as well for right. the models to be trained properly. So if you need a lot of data, you need a lot of power to crunch through that data. Right, and a lot of RAM to put it all together, a lot of networking. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Actually, neural networks are harder to parallelize, so it, that's why hmm. it's... Really, because from, from the graphs, they seemed incredibly parallel to begin with. I have to admit, I don't know a lot about this. I, I know less, so... <laughs> so I just know that some types of neural networks are less parallelizable than others, but I don't know all the details. Okay. Yeah, we, if, you're, if you're a neural network expert and you're in Toronto, come send me an email. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to listen to that podcast. Yeah, so the other one is like Spark, for example. Like, um, so I mentioned PySpark earlier yep. as well. What so, is that? So uh, Spark is a framework for parallelizing jobs. Uh, so if you think of a cluster of computers, Spark manages how you uh, organize the different jobs going to each computer and sort of manages how you get the information back from all of those parallel jobs and gives you a result. So you can, for highly parallelizable jobs, we have huge amounts of data. It'll be a lot faster if you send chunks of each job to a different computer or a different cluster or node. Right. So Py or sorry, Spark manages that distribution yes. of workload across you know a hundred machines, a thousand exactly, machines. Exactly. Exactly. It's your choice how big your cluster is. Right. And then Spark manages that. Cool. So one way to interact with Spark is through Python. The PySpark library. Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, another thing that you speak most often about is deployment, monitoring of stuff. What do you find you keep saying? Or do you have any, what are your main points on that? Uh, I find that I keep saying that you, ha you need a way to build a feedback loop from your model in production back to your data. I find that this is often the thing that's most likely to be missing when uh, departments or companies are thinking about deploying models in production. It's like you have the historical data, you build your model, and then you have a way to put your model in production. Let's say, very simple example, you have a real-time scoring model for uh, offers on your e-commerce website. 
And then it's business as usual. You still have, you still gather exactly the same data as you used to because you've already built those pipelines. But then you're like, wait a second, how do I know what the customer actually saw from the model point of view? So often that feedback loop, that additional bit of data of like what your model was gets left out. Right. That, that feedback is things like, okay, so the model said this would be the best result. Did yeah. they choose it or not? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So the feedback loop is one of the last few steps and it's often either neglected or asked if we can, if there's anything else that we can do in the meantime before we can build this, <laughs> alter this pipeline to include that uh, additional data. So that's one of the things. And then monitoring comes from that because once you have that feedback loop, you can see how the model is performing. And then A-B testing as well comes from that. So it's, it's a seemingly small step, but is crucial to the last bits that are required. And it sounds like often overlooked. Yeah, often it gets overlooked because you spend all this time gathering data and building models and figuring out how to put them in production that you might overlook or sort of think about it at the last minute. You're like, oh, wait, we don't have a way to see if what our model said and what our customer did, you know, was our model right or wrong. So, and sometimes it's really easy to, easy to monitor things, especially on a website. You might have Google Analytics and you can see how it's doing, uh, your product sales are doing, for example. You might have Google Optimize where you're managing different experiences for different segments of customers. But again, that doesn't give you a feedback loop back into your own database. Right. It's not specific to your ML. Exactly. Yeah, it's just specific to your website and how you've tagged it. <laughs> yeah. It's almost, it's, to me, it's almost as silly as like spending so much engineering on like the frame and the engine of a car and like put it all, yes, we got it. It's good. It's efficient. And you're like forgetting to put a windscreen up. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But now it's actually interesting because uh, cars have more data that they're generating now. Mm-hmm, and, a lot more. And you can actually get that data back and start analyzing it and see driving behavior, efficiency behavior, like how good is the fuel usage, things like that. And of course, there's Tesla, which probably has the most amount of data generated. But I think some other car manufacturers are starting to get more data as well from their cars. Interesting. So are manufacturers doing this just with test cars or really with all cars? I think with all cars. Yeah, so I... I, honestly don't know what kind of data and how much or how often or how it's connected, but I do know there are some newer models with certain manufacturers where they do gather some Mm. data of the car usage, fuel efficiency, things like that. Actually, I I had this uh, offer from TD if I I could get a discount on my car insurance if I agreed to get this app that would monitor my driving. Oh, yeah. You plug a little thing into the diagnostic port. Yeah, I don't know exactly what it would be because I didn't go through with it, but it would send them a, a bunch of data on my driving. So if I continue to be a good driver, I would get Yeah, you'd a get discount. a discount. Yes. I've, those have been around for, for a couple of years. And, yes. Yeah. You know, from an, from an insurance perspective, they make perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. From a privacy perspective. Yeah, I'm not about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah. It, you know, I, I don't imagine they anonymize that at all before sending it over the wire. So it would be things like, you know, you keep turning on your car at 11 p.m. and like you drive the fastest between 
you know, five and six o'clock or right. whatever it is. Right, exactly. Which, you know, you can, if I know the person who that data came from, there's a lot of privacy information I could garner from that. Yes, that's right. And that's uh, right. that stuff scares me. Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot to do to try to make people more comfortable with the data that you gather about them, or at least give some power into their hands to mm -hmm. profit some way from sharing that data with you. Because right now, most people don't. Right. The insurance one where you get a discount is the only one I can think of where sharing my personal data actually benefits me in some way. Yeah. And maybe yeah. Facebook has a dating app, I've heard. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, with Google, you get their products for free. Yep. Like Gmail and Google Photos, things like that. So that's, I'm guessing well, that's, that's the exchange. Yeah, it's true. It's not monetary, but it's definitely a benefit. Yeah. Most yeah. most people that I talk to would not leave Gmail pretty right. much no matter what they do. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So there is some of that. But there is um, the Sidewalk Labs project that's yeah. been proposed. And I've at least heard a lot of controversy about data ownership and privacy uh, between the city and Sidewalk Labs and people on the board quitting over issues with um, data specifically. Oh, shoot. So That's scary stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a lot of opinions are that neither the city nor Google should own this data, That, but each individual citizen should be able to own their own data. And right. if they do choose to share it, that they get some benefit back from it, from sharing it. Other than I'm allowed to walk around in that area. Right, right. Yeah. Actually, there is a, there's a Sidewalk Labs open house that's open on... I believe, like Parliament and Queen's Key. I went in there, but there is a camera that's actually in front of that building uh, letting you know that you're being recorded um, and that they're actually anonymizing the data. Oh, they are anonymizing yeah, it. Yeah, so the actual image data is anonymized. Okay, that's but. good. And I feel like basically no one else is doing that. <laughs> yeah, so that's good to know. Like, it's like, okay, so they're they are filming me, but... If they looked at the video, I don't think they could. They couldn't An see An individual you. could see my face, for example. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. We, we live in scary times when it comes to that sort of stuff. We don't know all of the implications of sharing all this data. And also, you know, five, six years ago, when this really started to ramp up, people weren't aware of it in the slightest. They were just loving the benefits. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot more awareness, I think, now, especially yeah. with the scandals coming out from Facebook, that you realize what it is that they're doing with that data. Yeah. And some of it is a little bit more shady than other things. So, Yeah, some of it is way more worrisome. And, and I mean, just the idea that I'm the product, I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, like there are other industries, for example, like banking, where they have data on you, but there's certain data they're not allowed to use That's for right. giving you credit, for example. You can't use age or I don't think you can use gender or I don't race. Think you can't use postal code. Yeah. Things like that. Those are proxies. Um, so you can't use certain kind of data to determine who gets credit. But there's no such regulation for other companies right. uh, and what they use their data for. Right, because it's a brand new industry. So yep. regulation hasn't caught up yet. Exactly, exactly. So... It's interesting to see, it will be, it will be interesting to see where this goes and if there are 
going to be certain policies created uh, by governments to deal with privacy and these kinds of companies. Right. I'm very skeptical that they will catch up. Like, I think by the time there are policies and procedures for how companies should, you know, operate and what they can share and what they can't use and things like that, it will have already, you know, had massive impacts. Right. Yeah. And we've already seen it with the, with the election to the South, but yeah, I'm sure there's tons more examples that are taking place right now that we're not aware of yet. Exactly. Exactly. We'll see where it goes. Yep. (laughs) Hang on to your hats, folks. Yeah. Tell me about the project you've worked on that you're the most proud of. That I'm the most proud of. Actually, the hotel project I'm the most proud of because it took such a long time and there was a lot of moments in there where I thought, man, this is not going to (laughs) work. This is going to fail horribly and we wasted all of this time trying to make it work. And yeah, there are just moments of despair that, you know, I kept going even through those moments and eventually it did work. And I had support for people believing that it would work. Um, I think that's one of the, that's one hard thing in data science where you're tackling something brand new and you don't know if you have the right data and you don't know if it's going to work. And sometimes you can get discouraged because you mm. don't see results right away. We saw results eventually. Eventually, It took a while, but I'm proud of it for that because we built something from scratch, from the ground up. And even though we had doubts, it eventually pulled through. So yeah, I feel really proud of that because it's kind of like my, my baby. <laughs> <laughs> you know, raised it yeah. from a small little thing to something that works and, you know, has been proven. And is continues to provide value even today. Yeah, yeah. So I felt like I, I left something nice, a nice legacy um, from some mm-hmm. when I was here at points. Yeah. And I wonder if anybody could go in there today and make heads or tails of it. <laughs> it's just this, like, thing we have to worship and never touch. I hope so. I, I, one of the things that I left is the ability to iterate. Uh, That's right, establishing that feedback loop. Exactly. So I hope that people can go in and change it. That's the whole point. I think we're just, we're just missing the Sabina-level knowledge to do it. <laughs> but hopefully someone else can pick it up and carry, carry the torch. Yeah. Uh, on that same vein of conversation, have you made any huge blunders? <laughs> uh, yes, definitely. Like um, One of the things, especially if you're the only data scientist working on a project, sometimes you write a bunch of code and it runs and it gives you reasonable results. And you're like, great, this is cool. And then you show the client and few months down the road, you find that there is one step that you forgot, like another data preparation step, let's say. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it's wrong, but you're missing something. And then you so, add that step in and your results change. Oh, and is it often better? Or in this case, was it better? Uh, it was better because I was meant, like I was supposed to do that step. I wanted to do that step. It kind of just dropped off right um so you what you ended up producing was kind of subpar could have been better it could have been better so with the step it changed the results it changed the results like not that much but it still changed them so you're like oh man (laughs) i wish i caught this earlier yeah so sometimes it happens it's i'm not perfect and sometimes you just 
miss missteps or miss something. And it's not that it's wrong. It's just not what you wanted. So it's wrong in that way. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I've definitely done that before. Some, because you always have something that works, but it's always good to question every step and make sure you have all the right steps. Mm. When you're doing Even if it. you have something that's showing value, yeah. go back and think like, is it, did I miss something? Is it working as best as it could be? Yeah. Yeah. Because often like if your code doesn't work, it just doesn't run. So it's yeah. kind of hard. It's hard to miss those because it, then it yeah. just doesn't work. In, in my discipline, if I do it wrong, production is on fire. Right? Like, yeah. Whereas with machine learning, you don't know exactly what to expect like when you release the model out in the wild, so to speak, it just does things. Right. But like, you don't know, like it's not on fire. It's doing things, but is it doing the right things or is it doing things in an optimal way? That's one of the things I find most fascinating about data science is that there's no clear finish line. Yeah. It's only iteration. So one of the things, and we can, I can provide this image to you. It's this cycle So for data science, we never use like a straight line. It's always a circle that represents the cycle for data science. It's called the CRISP-DM, which stands for the cross-industry process for data mining. So data mining, because data science wasn't around back when this was uh, invented back in 1996, I believe, this particular framework. Hmm. So they came up with this CRISP-DM methodology, which is a circle or a cycle, I should say, that starts out with data and business understanding that have arrows going between each other. So like you try to understand your business and the data you generate and then go back to understanding how the data relates back to your business. And then um, you do data preparation and you do modeling and then there's arrows going back and forth that sometimes you do a model and you're like, oh, maybe this could be better. And you go back to the data and prepare more features and you do this over and over Mm. Then you go to the evaluation step to see how good your model is, not from a, just from a statistical point of view, but also from a business point of view. Like, does this model make sense in the context of your business? Right. Be- measure it on the key points of interest that you want yeah. this model to be able to achieve. Exactly. Right. You also probably have KPIs, like key performance indicators that you uh, look at in terms of how the model is performing. And then once you're happy with that, you put the model in production, you deploy it, and then you monitor it. And then there's like this big circle that um, goes around this entire process that you just keep doing this. There is no mm. end point. You do it right. continuously. Once it's out in production, you now have more data and you need to analyze that further. How can you make this better? Put it out in yeah. production again. Exactly. A-B test. Exactly. So there mm. is no end point. Right. So as long, as long as your first iteration is better than nothing and your second iteration is better than your first iteration, this can go on forever. Yeah, then that's how you know you are data sciencing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and like for most models, they degrade over time. Hmm, um, right, because behaviors change for consumers. Yeah, behaviors change or you've affected consumer behavior with your models. Oh, interesting. So uh, you don't know exactly what might be changing, but you see that... S- when you look at model performance, it will slowly degrade over time. And that's why data scientists have jobs is because (laughs) (laughs) it's not just doing new things, but it's also maintaining older things. Right. Refining what you have. Refining, refreshing. Exactly. Often this is called the champion challenger framework where you have a, your champion model that's in production and you're always putting it up against challengers. And then 
you get to a point where the challenger is better than you champion and you promote your challenger to champion and you start over again. Hmm. So it's like continuous. Do you then sort of build up an arsenal of models that you can say, um, what was that? Three arm bandit. And you can kind of have them always ready to go. Yeah. So, um, multi-arm bandit is one way to do champion challenger where you have like multiple models. Let's say you have three models and then you pit them all against each other to see which one does best. And you might say, okay, model two is actually the best model. And then three, uh, model one and three were not that great. So I'm going to make two new models and then redeploy this bandit with the good one and two brand new ones. I see. My thought was, if consumer behavior is likely to change, let's say in the next six months, mm-hmm. and then the previous model that wasn't as good then becomes the champion, is it ever that it's kind of like automated and you just leave it in production and it will figure out which of the three models makes sense? Yeah, so with multi-arm bandit, yeah, you can do that. Just leave it in production okay. and it will change as consumer behavior changes. Hmm. So it's like continuously optimizing. But you can also change what sits in those arms and you can right. have more than three arms. <laughs> right, you can do 10 if you're... If you have If you traffic. can hold all that in your head. <laughs> That's too yeah. much to think about. If, this depends mostly on traffic to your website. If you right. have 100 visitors a day... I don't recommend doing right. a 10 arm bandit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause yeah. you need a certain number of transactions to call statistical significance. Exactly. Exactly. Is there anything we haven't covered that you want to dive more into? One of the things that I've noticed at conferences recently is that data scientists can't work alone. And I've had the same experience myself. We often need So we need to work with different parts of the organization to actually be able to deploy something of value. Hmm. So previously, data scientists may have worked in more of a a big data science team, doing a bunch of things and then handing things off to other departments to take care of. But in a smaller company, uh, you really need to collaborate with DevOps, Ops, IT, software engineers and data engineers. And there's a lot of knowledge being shared now between these different kinds of teams for data scientists to learn more about the deployment side of things and maybe for software engineers to learn more about the data science side of things. Uh, So I've heard of departments now, new departments popping up called AI DevOps. So just the DevOps around deploying those things and monitoring. Exactly. So now entire departments are starting to exist to support uh, deploying machine learning in organizations. I'm talking about larger organizations, of course, but it's very exciting to see that this collaboration is happening and this intersection of machine learning is not just for data scientists, it's for larger groups of people that work together to get something done. So, so data science can never exist in a vacuum. Yeah, yeah. And we're borrowing more in data science from uh, software development, such as working uh, with Docker containers and virtual environments and, you know, integrating our code into a CI/CD pipeline and things like that that I never knew about until I started working with developers. Um, so now it's very exciting to bring those two together mm-hmm. to get to build something even better than just... I could have done with data science knowledge. Right. 
well, CI/CD pipelines and Docker containers and all that stuff is my is my life. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's very exciting and lots yeah. of uh, talks at conferences about you know how do you build an infrastructure with Docker and Kubernetes right. to support data science work, things like that. So it's very interesting. Right. How to how to leverage those tools to make data science even better. Yes, yeah. exactly. And if I remember, um, you you showed me at some point how to run a Jupyter Notebook server straight out of a Docker container so that the setup is effectively zero. Exactly. Yeah. So we had someone here at Points, Justin, set it up where he built a Docker container with Jupyter Notebook and all the Python packages and versions that we needed to run a bunch of machine learning algorithms so that anyone that ever wanted to rerun it or build on top of it could just spin up that image and start working. And off you go. Yeah. So that's like cool. amazing for me where I've struggled in the past and I, I've heard this example before at um, Altair. We've had some interns that developed some code and, you know, we couldn't figure out, like, what packages did they use, what version, what version of Python, and, like, it just gets so messy so quickly that it's like, oh, if only we managed environments in some way. <laughs> if only we had a process for this. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's so refreshing to have the, this kind of knowledge seep into the data science field uh, to help us be better at what we do. That's good. Yeah. And yeah, my, my impression, especially of early data science, was that it was a lot more scrappy. Yes. Very hacky. Yeah. You know, just like, like little bits. It works. Don't touch anything. Yeah. <laughs> little bits here and there held together by little bits of tape and, you know, a little rickety and might also catch on fire at any time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not really production worthy. Yeah. Um, the sun went behind some clouds. It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I love the stability and the process and infrastructure that can help us be better at that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, another discipline got migrated in. Yes, you know? exactly. So yeah, I always like to learn about these things and knowing about Docker and environments and Anaconda to manage environments. I don't know much about Kubernetes, but it's all really exciting to to know about now. Yeah, cool. So what's next in terms of your growth? Where are you going? That's a really good question. So I just started working at Altair and I'm taking on a variety of projects. I'm mentoring. I'm working on also internal R&D. So I'm back to being my, well, not back to, but I've always been a jack of all trades. I think my goal in very broad terms is to be an expert that can advise people on what to do. Hmm. So... I do things myself, but less doing and more just being able to help others shape the thoughts, shape architecture, shape how to tackle things and how to do things. So that's sort of my career growth into doing more and more of that mentoring and advising and less of the, the right. doing. Being an architect and being a coach. Yes, exactly. So that's where I see myself going in the next three years, I would say. It's really hard to plan very far in advance, and often what I want to do changes, but this is where I am right now, is being more and more of that expert that guides where mm -hmm. people go. Well, as data science gets more and more people in it, and it gets bigger and more complicated, yeah, uh, we're going to need more of those, more people like yeah. you. And I'm pretty lucky I got into the data science field early before it was a full-blown field like it is today. So I, I have the advantage of having several years of experience 
to help a lot of people that are coming into the field now are trying to switch into the field. So right. part of that, I, I do like helping others at least talk with me and figure out where they are and if they want to get into data science. So there's that sort of also mentoring aspect of it. Gotcha. And what is your advice to somebody who's interested in this data science and they want to start getting involved? I think if you like to solve problems and you like coding and stats, it would be the right thing for you. <laughs> it's again, we go vague, but yeah, it's um, an intersection of a lot of things. Yeah. So, uh, one of the panels I spoke at regarding career, one of the things was for developers that want to get into data science. I think they're uniquely positioned to get into data science because they often can code, let's say, in Python. And it's an easy transition from a coding perspective. But what they need to learn is what is the process of data science? How do you think about problems? And how to understand some statistics and models? So I think that's uh, one way to get into data science. If you are someone that knows some math and statistics, but and know some of this uh, ways to solve problems with statistics, you would probably need to learn some coding. Yeah, which there's never been a better time in history. Yeah. Like, there's Python workshops and JavaScript workshops all over the place. Exactly, and online. There are so many There's so courses. many good resources. Yeah, some of them are free even, so you don't even need to pay that much. You can also uh, maybe enter a Kaggle competition. What's a Kaggle competition? So Kaggle is a website that posts um, data science competitions. Uh, mm. And often they have cash prizes, but there's also uh, practice competitions that you can enter. And basically you get a data set and requirements for that data set. And often you have to submit model predictions and you get a score. Hmm. So, so you get to practice taking a problem and actually solving it and seeing how well you do. Exactly. And then iterating. Exactly, yeah. So, and the beauty of Kaggle, they now have um, what they call kernels. So they have notebooks in Kaggle, similar to a Jupyter notebook, with code that other people have submitted for others to learn from. So you can actually see people's Python code or R code, whatever flavor you like, and see how they solve the problem. Right, so you can find good examples to learn from. Exactly. So you, you can see, here's the data, exactly the same data you're looking at, mm. and how someone else solved that problem. So that's a good but place to go. In coding, I always find it so interesting, the many different ways you can solve a problem. Exactly. And, you know, even if I come up with one and I spend, you know, it's my second attempt at it, and I think I found a way better solution than the first time, and I look at a couple other examples, I think, oh, Goodness, how did I not think of that? Right. So much easier. Yeah, yeah. In data science, there's like a f there are a few steps that a lot of people will do. So uh, I'm actually doing a Kaggle competition right now. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of time. Right now. <laughs> not not right now, right now. But I'm. Uh, it's called a fr it's a fraud detection competition. So it's a bunch of transactions, and some of them are fraudulent, and some of them are not fraudulent. And the goal is on an unlabeled data set without knowing what's fraudulent or not, um, create the probability, a column of probabilities that that transaction is fraudulent. So it's mm. a typical data science exercise. So mm. a lot of people, if you look through the kernels and a lot of what I would do is you start with the data, you have two different data sets, you join them together on a transaction ID, and then you look at data that's mostly missing. You might drop some data, you might 
replace missing values with other values before you model. You might prepare the data in some way. You split it up in a training sample and a testing sample. You run your model. You get some results. So there's a very simple basic steps that you'll find in a lot of, of those kernels. Right. So you'll see these are the general steps any data science project would take. So it's a good place to start. Yeah, it sounds very, very bite-sized. Like I can take one of these for an afternoon or a Sunday and sort of tackle it, get my head around it. Yeah, yeah. So when I wrote my first pass at this competition, I spent about a couple hours on a Sunday night putting together a working pipeline that generated predictions. Um, they weren't great predictions, but it worked. <laughs> yeah, but that's how you got in. Yeah, yeah. So then you can start to iterate. It's like, well, let me try a bunch of other models. Let me try to do some hyperparameter tuning. Let me think of better ways to prepare my data, that it's better for my model, et cetera. Gotcha. And then, and then you're off to the races. Yes, yeah. yeah. You gave me a look when I said hyperparameter tuning. Well, I'm like, I'm going to have to look that up later and figure out what the heck that is. Yeah, so I can talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, please. So when you have a model... Take a decision tree model, for example. You provide hyperparameters on how you're going to train the model. Some examples include uh, the number of levels that you build your model to. So when you're creating splits in a decision tree, are you going to grow it down to five levels, six levels, ten levels, etc.? You know, what's the minimum percent of records you need in a node before you actually do a split? What's the minimum number of records? in a child node after a split is being done. So some parameters to prevent the model from overfitting. But how do you choose five levels or six levels or hmm. what percentage of records should be in your child nodes? Um, in the past, what I used to do way back when is like, well, I know from my experience, maybe five levels is good and I want at least 3% of the data to be in a node before a split is allowed and at least 1% of the data should be in a terminal node. But now uh, we can do something called hyperparameter tuning where you actually create an array of all the different possible options. Let's say, well, maybe five levels or six levels or 10 levels. And then the percentage of records, maybe it's like 3% or 5% or 4%. So you come up with all the possible options that you want to explore um, in that space. And you basically run this thing called a grid search where you can see okay, which combinations of all of these options actually gives me the best model? So rather than you guessing like, well, I think it should be five levels, it will tell you the combination of five levels with this percentage in the root node and this percentage in, in the split node actually will give you the best model. So it takes some of the guesswork out. Right, so rather than you having to generate all these different models yourself, it sounds like you can give a few parameters and let it generate several models. Exactly, so that's what we call hyperparameter tuning. Although when you have larger data sets and you have larger um, amounts of parameters to tune, that can be very expensive. Yeah. So yeah, this is one of the, my favorite things that I've discovered I could do in Python with grid search and now R also has uh, the ability to do grid search for models. Oh, cool. Do you find that, do both languages kind of move in lockstep? Or do you find that the, like, you expect R is going to be much better or you think Python is going to be much better in five and ten years? It's, there are completely different and I think cater to slightly different communities as well. Like I said, R is catering to more niche 
statistical applications that perhaps researchers are using. So I, I don't have enough mental energy to focus on both at the same time. So <laughs> I used to be uh, more focused on R, and then I learned Python, and I switched to being focused on Python. And I find I can't really focus on both at the same time. Okay. Yeah. So almost like they're they're too different to be able to juggle. Yeah, they're similar, but they're also very different and developed. They're similar <laughs> as in they they can do stats, they can do models, they're object oriented in the fact. Okay. So I can give you an example. Um, like for example, R can handle um, categorical columns of data. So what I mean, let's say you have fruit type like apple, banana, pear. It's like actual string. Uh, when you create a model with that input data, R can handle it as a factor. Um, so you don't have to prepare the data in any way. R will be okay oh, with that. Oh, I see. That. Whereas Python, you're going to have to say is banana is... Correct. So that's one way. It's called one-hot encoding. So because you can't put string data into a model in scikit-learn, you'll have to do either label encoding where banana equals one, apple equals two you know, pair equals three or one hot encoding where it's like, is banana zero one, is apple zero one, is pear zero one and so forth. So you need to do a little bit more work to make that digestible for your model. I see. Right. And that stems from, if I'm not mistaken, R is more specific to this kind of work, whereas Python is entirely general purpose. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what I mean. They're quite different in that way. Gotcha. So probably we'll have both for a very long time. I think so. I, they, again, they cater to different communities, so I don't see R going away. Uh, there's been like an explosion of packages that are being created for R, and at the same time, there's a, there's so much in Python, and you have things like uh, TensorFlow with Keras um, that's keeping track with all the, the Google-released algorithms. Mm. Yeah, there's no shortage of stuff going on in the Python world. Exactly, yes. Very cool. All right, uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? I think we've covered mostly everything. I think we've covered pretty much everything. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything you want to leave people with? Data science is not scary. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to get into data science, don't be intimidated by all the algorithms and all the bleeding edge deep learning stuff coming out of Google, uh, most companies don't use that. You know, mm-hmm. Most companies are just struggling to try to make sense of their data, maybe do a little bit better than they're doing today because it really means big gains for them to even do a little bit better. So focus more on trying to use data science as a framework and the tools that data science provides uh, for solving problems and don't worry about all the fancy bleeding edge stuff that's out there Uh, just try to solve problems so don't be intimidated it's just another way to do things and more and more companies or departments will be doing that in the coming years right and that fancy bleeding edge stuff is maybe what five percent of all companies honestly i i don't know and it's like that hierarchy of needs that you've actually outlined there. I've seen it before. And a lot of companies are sometimes stuck at the, we need to gather data phase. (laughs) So right near the bottom. So they're near the bottom. Obviously, the big companies like Google and Facebook 
they're using advanced things. They're creating their own advanced algorithms themselves, uh, but a lot of companies are not really using it. Um, I can't say who is using it necessarily, but it's not common. Gotcha. Sabina, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you, Sabina, for being on the podcast. Don't forget to check out the notes if you want to know more about anything we discussed. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Today's closing features music from a local Toronto band. This is High in the City by Sun K.